you don't need to pull in some sensationalism like a shark bite to make the animals interesting. They are just plain interesting in and of themselves. Welcome to Shelf Home, the podcast that gives the ocean its very own hotline. I'm Cameron Larmer, your host and creator here on the show. Join us as we hear from ocean stewards, discover threats to ocean health, and learn ways we can all answer the ocean's call. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Tampa Bay Estuary Program and Coastal Creative. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome to Shell Phone, the podcast that gives the ocean its very own hotline. I'm Harmony Dawson, and joining us today is Dr. Stephen Kajiura. He's a professor of biological sciences at Florida Atlantic University and is well known for his research on black tip shark migration. You can learn more about his research on Instagram at shark migration. Thank you for joining us today. Before we dive into that topic, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do and how you got into the field of marine science? I'm a professor here in the Department of Biological Sciences at Florida Atlantic University. And my area of expertise is actually the uh, sensory biology and behavior of sharks and their relatives, the skates and the stingrays. And I've since expanded that work, not only looking at the sensory biology, but also how these animals are responding to uh, changes in their environment. So as ocean temperatures are increasing, the movements of these animals are actually changing. Their migration patterns are shifting in response. And so this is some of the work that I've been doing in my lab for uh, you know, well over a decade now. And my sensory work uh, goes back you know, over two decades. So it's something that we've been doing for a long time and uh, something that uh, I've always wanted to do, actually, since I was a little kid. Well, when you were a little kid, were there any ocean movies that caught your attention and kind of got you interested in the field? I, I distinctly remember being, uh, you know, very young and watching the Jacques Cousteau specials that would come out every now and again. And I was just enthralled by those. These guys were diving in the water, looking at things you know, underwater, and I was just mesmerized sitting in front of the TV and, and watching them. And then on a regular basis, every Sunday afternoon, I made sure to tune into Wild Kingdom with Marlon Perkins. This was you know, back in the, uh, I guess, back in the, the mid-70s. And I loved that. It was, to me, the, uh, the most fun because this was, you know, this was the reality. This is what people were actually doing. And I thought, I want to do that. That seems to me the, the ideal sort of job, especially when Wild Kingdom had underwater episodes. That, that was like the, the pinnacle of, uh, of my excitement. So those sorts of shows really were uh, an early influence on my life. And I don't know which came first, my interest or the show sparking this interest. I think the two just sort of naturally fed off of each other. It's interesting that it's um, more documentary style things that you watched that got you interested rather than like animated things or fictional movies? Well, you know, it is interesting. The one fictional movie that I do remember was the Disney's version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the first time I saw that, I thought, wow, this is, you know, this is really cool. You know, you're a little kid and you see the, uh, like the giant squids attacking the, the Nautilus. And you think, man, that's, that's so neat. And I distinctly remember uh, drawing giant squids attacking submarines. Uh, for years after that, I just thought that was the coolest thing. And, um, you know, the more I learned about them and the more I realized, well, they don't actually attack submarines. That was <laughs> that yeah. was made up. But, you know, still the the interest was there. And I think it was, uh, you know, again, uh, an influence on my life one way or the other. 
In your experiences with the ocean, I'm sure there have been some scary moments. Can you tell us about a memory that comes to mind? You know, I do remember this one time I was off Cape Lookout, off North Carolina on the Outer Banks, and I was snorkeling. I was by myself, just snorkeling off the beach, and I was startled because there was this huge school of cow-nose rays that sort of appeared out of nowhere. And it made me jump. I wasn't expecting. I was just looking at the sand, looking at little fishes. And I wasn't expecting this massive, it looked like an entire uh, sandbank was moving beside me. Wow. And I, I jumped as well. What was that? And I, it freaked me out for a second because I couldn't figure out what it was. And it was not one large thing. It was a whole bunch of smaller things that appeared to move together. And so that was one time that I was genuinely scared for a second until I could figure out what it was. I was you know, disconcerted. I couldn't figure out what was going on. Once I realized what it was, I said, oh, come on, you're a marine biologist, get back in the water, you know, confront this opportunity, you know, actually face it. And I, and I did, and I enjoyed it then. But initially, the shock of not knowing quite what it was, that was enough to, to throw me in and make me jump. And this, this happened one other time, actually. I remember down in uh, the Florida Keys, I was snorkeling off Bia Honda uh, Park. And Again, I just snorkeling along by myself. This water is not particularly deep or anything. It's not, not dangerous in any way. But uh, I felt this, this presence beside me, this large object moving through the water. I could actually feel the water being displaced. You know, felt the hairs on my, on my arms and legs were moving. I said, there is something really big right beside me. And I was, instead of looking down, I looked up and I realized there was a big school of tarpon swimming right beside me. And again, it startles you at first well, you know, these things are, you know, they're bigger than I am, these, these big giant fish swimming beside me. And again, it's one of those cases where it startles you. You're scared for a second until you realize what it is. And then you say, wow, this is really cool. Look at these guys. They're right beside me, just as big as me, just cruising on by. So I think in that case, it's a matter of, you know, the, the fear giving way almost instantaneously to excitement. Once you figure out what it is, then you say, this is really neat. Yeah, I'm sure your background in marine science helps with that, helps transform that into like being in awe of the creatures instead of scared of them. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because, you know, someone who is unfamiliar with them would say, I'm surrounded by stingrays. Oh, no. And, you know, bolt out of the water and, and be terrified. But the more you know, the less likely you are to be afraid of something. Yes. So you've said in previous interviews that education is the key to setting the record straight about sharks and the ocean as a whole. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think just building on what I just said, you know, knowledge banishes fear. The more you know, the better informed you are, the better able you are to understand what it is that you're seeing and the better able you are to cope with what you're seeing. And so if you're you're educated as to what's out there in the marine environment, what you're likely to encounter when you're out there in the marine environment, you're less likely to be caught off guard. You're less likely to be startled by something, right? And as a result, you're more likely to say, oh yeah, this is great, this is exciting. And so the more you know, the better able you are to appreciate what you're seeing in the water. And I think that's why I, I like to work with documentary filmmakers or podcasts like this, where the information is disseminated to a broad audience that may not have the formal education 
in one particular area. But the more they learn, the better informed they are. And uh, I think the more you know, the more you appreciate it and the less fearful you become of, of the environment around you. Yeah. So this is the big question that gets asked a lot, but how common is it for sharks or black tip sharks specifically to end up biting people? If you look worldwide at the number of people in the water and the number of sharks in the water, we have a very, very small chance of being bitten by a shark. One of the things to remember is that the sharks are out there all the time. They're cruising in the water. There's very few negative interactions with, with sharks and humans. However, that being said, unfortunately, the shark that bites more people than anyone else, especially here in Florida, is the black tip shark. And one of the reasons for that is that these black tips are migrating along the coast. And these black tips tend to hang out right in the shallow water, right up against the beach, right where the people are. And so as a result, out of just, you know, statistical probability, that's the shark that's most likely uh, going to encounter people um, along the U.S. eastern seaboard, at least. And as a result, that's the one that ends up with uh, more bites on people than, than any other species. And so your chances overall of being bitten are very small. Even your chances of being bitten in Florida, the shark bite capital of the world, are still very small. But um, if you do get bitten in Florida, it's probably going to be a black tip. The classic ocean movie Jaws is a thriller about a shark attacking people in a beach town. After watching this movie, many people have thought twice about swimming at the beach, but there was also an interesting oceanographer character in the movie named Matt Hooper who loved sharks. So can you tell us more about how Jaws has impacted the way we look at the ocean or you specifically? Yeah, so Hooper was always so much fun because, uh, you know, Richard Dreyfuss's character was this marine biologist from the Institute. They didn't specify, they went Woods Hole, Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts, but, you know, they were very specific not to say the name. Um, and he was the one who knew about the biology of the animal. So where she had Quint, the shark hunter, and then the the police chief, they also had the biologist who was able to inform them about how to kill a big shark like that. This made it interesting because they brought in a scientist as a character. Scientists are often depicted in movies as the bad guys, the evil scientists, the mad scientist, you know, someone who's out there to destroy the world or whatever, right? In this case, they brought in a scientist who was one of the good guys, who was, was helping out. And I thought that was a good take on it. I thought that was a, a different sort of approach to how scientists are often portrayed. And the movie itself really sort of changed the way the world thought about sharks. Sharks were largely just ignored. That movie really terrified the public and it really changed public perception to the point where, you know, it was like a shark mania thing. And like the, I guess it was around the mid to late seventies. And as a result, people started paying attention to sharks. I remember going to the grocery store, you could buy an iron on shark, you know, jaws shark thing for your t-shirt. I said, Oh wow. And I got one actually when I was a little kid and you know, it was, it was popular. And so as a result, you changed an entire generation of children, my age, maybe a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger how we perceived it, how we perceived these animals. You know, we grew up with this, this fascination or this fear, and it's, it's persisted uh, to this day. And now those people who were little kids back then, now we're the adults. Now we're the ones out there making public policy or, uh, 
you know, trying to conserve the animals, or in some cases, being terrified and passing on that fear to, you know, children of our own. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. It can, like you said, it can go either way, it can go to fascination or it can go to fear. And uh, my hope is as we are able to educate the public more, more people become fascinated and there's less fear. So as a college student, I've heard in a few lectures that movies like Indiana Jones present a wild version of archaeology. They draw people in and get them interested, but aren't really true to what the field is. So as a professor, do you ever have conversations with students about ocean movies? Not really about movies, more so about the documentaries that they see on TV. You know, they'll see stuff on National Geographic or Discovery or you know, any of these uh, uh, other channels, and they'll ask me about it and say, is this true? I saw this on TV. Is this right? And so in that, in that case, the documentary has sort of sparked interest and sparked the students to start asking questions. And although the documentary is trying to do a really good job, sometimes they don't quite get it all right. Or it's, it's much more nuanced than what they're able to present in the, uh, in the program. And so that gives us an opportunity to have a good discussion, to really say, this is what's important. This is what you should get from that uh, programming. So, uh, you know, for movies, maybe that doesn't pop up in conversation very much, but certainly uh, television documentaries really sort of spark these conversations with students. And, and that's what I enjoy. You have also been involved in documentaries, specifically National Geographic Shark Fest documentaries. I noticed that a lot of times the titles use language like attack or shark versus something else to reel in viewers. Do you think that it's a good approach or that it leads to more misconceptions? I think one of the problems is that the network execs like to have metrics where they measure the number of uh, viewers, you know, it's, it's their, their reach for, for advertising, right? But I think that by going down the path of, you know, promoting shark attacks or, you know, when sharks versus whatever, whatever, you know, it really does not send the best message, right? I, and I know the argument is we have to do that to entice the people to watch and then we can hit them with the science. But I don't think people are that stupid. I think people are smarter than, than they're given credit for. I think if you come up with an interesting topic, an interesting idea, call it electro shark, all right? Then talk about how sharks can use their electrosensory system to detect prey. They, can, they have an electrosensory system that can detect one billionth of a volt, right? They can you know, find their prey in total darkness. That's interesting. It's not shark versus anything. It's not about shark attacks. It's got nothing to do with that. You're talking about the science of the animal itself. And yes, you're using a catchy title um, and you're getting people's attention and that's what matters. So I am in favor of promoting the actual biology of the animals, the science behind it. But I'm not a big fan of some of these, these titles, which really don't, don't help the cause. I think the, you know, they try and offset the damage that they do with the title. But you know what? If you didn't have that title, you wouldn't have to offset the damage in the first place. Does anything come to mind as your favorite thing that you've talked about in a documentary, like a specific fact or topic? I remember we did a program once called, um, I think it was Ultimate Shark. And what they did is they focused specifically on the different sensory systems 
that sharks are able to use to locate their prey. And they talked about how sharks can see underwater, what they can actually see compared to other fishers or what we would see if we were you know, diving or snorkeling. And what sharks can hear and what sharks can smell and what sharks can detect with the electroreceptors. And they spent an entire program, like an hour-long program, talking about shark sensory physiology without even realizing it, you know, making the people interested in the animals. And programs like that, I think are, are particularly interesting. They're combining really good footage. They're talking to the scientists and interviewing the scientists and the students directly. And uh, they're getting across the message that these animals are interesting in their own right. You don't need to pull in some uh, sensationalism like uh, a shark bite uh, to, be, to make the animals interesting. They are just plain interesting in and of themselves. And I think the more of that sort of programming is out there, the better off the sharks would be, the more people uh, will be excited about the sharks rather than terrified about the potential for a bite. So if you were to make a movie about the ocean in some world, uh, what would it be about or what would its message be? I think one of the things that we would need to do is make sure that it was somewhat hopeful in the end, right? It has to be realistic, depict the world the way it is, but talk about how the world can be better. And the one example I have of this is during COVID, the world basically shut down. We had lockdowns. There was no, no people driving around, no people out on the streets. Basically, the world came to a halt for a number of months. And as a result, what we saw was actually skies getting clearer. You could actually see farther. Air quality indices went up. Animals were starting to roam into urban habitats. Nature was basically recovering from the impact that humans had imposed upon it. And I think we could do something similar. I think we could do um, a big picture sort of what's happening in the state of the world's oceans. We know the oceans are warming. We know that humans are causing this global climate change. And we know that there are ramifications of this throughout multiple levels in the ecosystem from top level predators all the way down to the little phytoplankton. But I think what would be interesting to do would be a program about the, you know, the, the changes that are happening in the marine ecosystem, saying this is what's happening. This is what humans have, have done. But also say this is what we could do and end on this positive note to say this is where we should be going as a society, as a species. And I think that would be a really interesting uh, program to, uh, to produce. Let me throw out another pitch for you. As long as yeah. we're pitching programs, here's one that I think would be interesting too. So many times these documentaries will feature scientists who are working on charismatic animals or scientists who are out there doing things that are easy to digest. It's easy to understand. I go out, I tag a shark, I follow its movement. The average viewer can get that, right? And those are easy programs to produce. But there's a tremendous amount of really good science that's not being promoted, that people don't know about simply because it's not nearly as, as charismatic, right? But it's still really interesting. It's still valuable information. And so I would like to do a program where you've got a host, like a PhD level, a credentialed scientist, who's able to travel to a bunch of different labs, you know, go to a different lab and talk to those people about what they're doing. Maybe their work isn't featured because they're not out in the field. Maybe they're, they're lab-based. You know, maybe they're working on, 
I don't know, you know, some DNA stuff where they're not out in the field sampling, but they're working in, you know, getting really good information that way. Have the scientists come to them, interview the, the PI, interview the students, have them explain it in a way that's digestible to the public, in a way that the public can understand. And if you have a good charismatic host who can do that and sort of uh, draw the information out and make it accessible to the public, you're able to tap into a whole suite of additional information, additional scientists out there who might not have that sort of exposure otherwise. And so again, I think that would be really interesting with the public to show that there's much more to biology, much more to sharks than simply sticking a tag on an animal and see where it goes. Fine, that's great stuff. But there's a whole suite of other things out there that need just as much attention. Yeah, the big topics tend to get many, many things made about them. But it's always fun to find something that's a little more niche and in-depth about something new. Exactly. And I think it, it illustrates the breadth of different projects that are out there that are, like you said, equally interesting. They're just simply not given as much airtime. So switching gears here to Finding Nemo. It's an animated Disney movie about a clownfish searching for his lost son. And it is geared towards kids, but they did work with scientists behind the scenes to try and create a more accurate portrayal of the ocean. So do you think that it was successful in that endeavor? I think they did a fantastic job. Now, you know, they were telling a story. They're storytellers, right? That, that's the, the end result. But to tell a good story, you need a good basis. And they were able to tap a colleague of mine, actually, who was the scientific and technical consultant for that movie. And he was able to point out things that they were doing that were not helpful, not useful, would be just plain wrong. So, for example, when they first drafted the, the underwater scenery along the barrier reef there in Australia, they had kelp growing there. And he said, uh-uh, doesn't occur there, can't do that. Um, and so he was able to nip that in the bud straight away and say, this is a coral-based system. It's not a kelp-based system. You're not going to see long strands of seaweed growing anywhere. That would be just plain wrong. And so in that case, they, they got it right. And so these are little subtle things that the average viewer isn't going to pick up on. They're not going to notice that. But a lot of it was, was correct. And I think they, you know, the story stands alone. The story is a great story. Um, it's a fun movie. And the fact that they were able to incorporate a lot of actual science, you know, actually correct information as best you can, given it's cartoon fish talking, you know, I think it was a really good job. And I, I hope that other movies sort of follow that lead and, and start to tap scientists to get things right. Not just for cartoons, but for, for everything. Any, you know, any movies would, be, uh, would benefit from taking advantage of the fact that scientists have a lot to offer. In that movie, when I watched it as a kid, I definitely didn't notice any scientific things specifically, but rewatching it more recently, I noticed, for example, the teacher, Mr. Ray, telling the kids about different science things like the ocean depth zones. And yes. I really appreciated that, like watching it back later. They did a really good job. And, uh, you know, the fact that they were able to incorporate that into the narrative of the story and make it seem natural and at the same time slip a bit of education in on the side 
I thought that was, uh, you know, particularly well done. How do you feel about movies that sacrifice some accuracy for entertainment, especially when they're geared towards kids? You can't expect these movies to always be educational or, or, or correct, let's say, you know. You have to let little children be little children and just plain enjoy the enjoy the story. So, you know, I'm I'm not going to advocate that everything has to be, you know, finding Nemo sort of level of accuracy. But uh, I think that it's useful if you can slip in a little bit here and there. Kids are sharp. They're going to pick up on it, whether you realize it or not. And so I think the more you can, you know, slip into the story, the more it helps the storyline, the more it helps to develop the characters and the more children are going to learn. You don't have to do it all the time, but, you know, it, it helps. Is there a movie that you think really got the ocean right or a movie that you love despite its fictional elements? The Perfect Storm was this really interesting movie. It was about uh, commercial fishermen who were out there targeting, I think it was swordfish uh, of uh, Massachusetts. And what was interesting was the fact that they depicted the fishing accurately. They, they did that correctly. They did a good job depicting what it was like. And they also did a good job depicting what the environmental conditions were like. You know, when that storm came up, you know, tremendous waves, wind, everything, it all came together to make this you know, so-called perfect storm. And the enemy there was not the fish, was not, you know, anything in the ocean, wasn't even the, the storm itself. The enemy was basically the human greed. They were out there. They could have gone in early with their catch, but they chose to stay out there deliberately to try and catch more and to, to exploit the environment even more. And as a result, the ship got caught in the storm and they sank and they all died. Um, and so in that case, I think that's an interesting example because here they're depicting things accurately, the way the fishing was done, you know, the actual storm. But the, the enemy wasn't the environment. It wasn't the fish. It wasn't anything like that. It was the fact that the people were their own worst enemy in that case. They're the ones who chose to stay out there. And they're the ones who suffered uh, as a result of that choice. Is there a movie that stands out to you as having got the ocean really wrong? Well, I think most recently, the one that got a lot of attention was the movie The Meg. Um, based on the the book of the same title, I believe. I actually and love that movie. <laughs> it's it's a fun movie yes. if you view it as you know a fun movie. But uh, there were so many things that were just plain wrong. Mm -hmm. um, now it's been a number of years since I've seen it, so I don't remember the details. But I do remember something about how they went deep, deep down into the ocean and they found an entirely new ecosystem down there with, you know, a whole range of different species, including enough biomass that could support these top level predators, like these enormous megalodon sharks. And we know that that's not the case. You simply do not have that sort of productivity in the deep sea to support top level predators. It's certainly not going to work like that. And then the biology of the animals, they really took a lot of liberties uh, with the biology of the megalodon sharks as well. So there was a lot in that. If you view it as just plain fun, that's great. The problem was they tried to throw in some science, which was not well supported. And so you ended up uh, confusing the public more than anything. Now, one of the other things that I would point out here, something that was devastatingly wrong, was a few years ago, a number of years ago now, Discovery Channel put out a program um, along the lines of does megalodon still exist or something. 
And it was this fictionalized account, but it was presented during Shark Week when people assumed that it was an actual documentary. They, they thought that was, you know, factual material. And of course, it's completely made up. Megalodon is long since extinct. There's no, there's no question. And, you know, trying to depict it as like some scientific, some debate among scientists, whether it's real or not. No, there's no debate. There's absolutely no debate at all. It's not, you know, they, they're, they're extinct. That's it. Uh, no scientists think that they still exist. In that case, Discovery really shot themselves in the foot. They lost credibility because they were producing this program and, you know, slipping it into their Shark Week programming so people thought it was real. And that really sort of caused a lot of scientists to stop working with Discovery. And so that's an example where you had a forum that you could access a huge audience, millions of people tune into Shark Week. And uh, I think that's an example of something that is catastrophically wrong. Yeah, the packaging definitely matters. Like with the Meg, you know that it's more about the story and the action and the wow factor. But with things that seem like documentaries, you want to trust the information more. How did you feel about the representation of research in the Meg or other movies? Like when they are going down in the submersible to first discover the creatures. Yeah, all I can say is I wish I had the funding that these guys had, uh, that those researchers had. They had their own underwater base. They had submersibles. They had pretty much anything they wanted. Um, And so in reality, we as scientists are scrounging to get whatever funding we can get to do the work that we need to do. Um, And so the reality is, no, we don't have our own submersibles. We don't have giant research vessels. We don't have, you know, all the equipment that these guys had. And so in that respect, it may set up this false understanding of what the scientists are capable of doing. So that's uh, one aspect that I think should be addressed. But uh, that's one thing that stuck out uh, with me. And uh, I'm, I'm sure there are others. If I were to, uh, to watch it again, it would, it would annoy me. Yeah, I'm sure. What kind of future do you hope to see for the portrayal of the ocean in media and the ocean in real life? In reality, what we're going to see is more problems arising simply because we continue to exploit the ocean is viewed as an endless resource. You get people on the beach, they look out at the ocean, they can't see there anything but, but water. So there's a huge amount of ocean. There's no way we could possibly impact something that big. Yeah, we, we can we, we really can. There's microplastics out there that are accumulating. The temperature is changing. Uh, the levels of chemicals in the water are actually changing. We've got a lot of uh, runoff and phosphates along the shoreline. You know, so we are genuinely impacting the ocean. It's not an infinite resource. And so I see that as our reality going forward. And I would like to see that reflected in some of the, some of the programming that's being developed. For example, if you had a program where the people were talking about sharks and fishing, it would be great if they could mention, you know, shark populations have been decimated since like the 70s and the 1980s, you know, and it's taken literally decades for the shark population to start to come back, right? That's, that's factually correct. You could easily incorporate that into the script and you could, you know, make that one of the, uh, one of the points that I think would engage the public because, oh, is that right? 
yeah, that's that's interesting. And and get that narrative out there. So again, I think the more you know, the better informed you become, the better able you are to pass that information on to others and help them to become informed. And as a result, they can say, you know what, it's not an infinite resource. We do have to be concerned about the welfare of the oceans. What happens in the oceans reflects back on us in the end anyway, right? They, the oceans are providing a vast quantity of the oxygen that we consume. And so if we are not taking good care of the oceans, we're not taking good care of ourselves. And so I think that's the sort of message I would like to see promoted more. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Stephen. You can learn more about Stephen's work on Instagram at Shark Migration and on Florida Atlantic University's website. Keep an ear out for more episodes of Shellphone and find us on any social media platforms at Breach the Surface.